Facts, students. Yesterday we talked about the historical background of the Aeneid as well as some facts about Virgil. Quickly we will review that today and then we're going to get into book one of Virgil's Aeneid and talk about that. So, some dates you need to remember. Remember that Virgil was born in 70 BCE and that he died in 19 BCE. Know that he started writing the Aeneid in 30 BCE and finished in 19 BCE because he wudded in 19 BCE. He died, yes, and he died leaving the Aeneid somewhat unfinished. Don't worry, the entire story had already been written out in prose before he ever started it in poetry. Recall that he wrote about three lines of poetry a day over those 10 or 11 years or so, about 11 years, really 10, um, and that he just had not gone back and edited some of it. What is it that he wanted to do to his work, though? What was his dying wish, yes? To burn it. Some people think it's because he was a perfectionist, and it had not yet been fully edited, so he did not want to release it. But some people, using Book 6 and the Underworld and Aeneas leaving out of the Gate of Ivory, uses evidence that he thought that the book was a what? A piece of propaganda or a lie, and he did not want to have his name ascribed to that. Many people have thought that throughout history. I do not think that, and so I will disagree with that, but I will provide you uh, the information uh, supporting both perspectives. I'll just show you which perspective I think is stronger because I think the information supporting it is stronger. Alright, recall also that you need to know about the Pax Romana, which existed during the time of Caesar Augustus, formerly known as Octavian Caesar, the step or the son-in-law of Julius Caesar. It started 27 BC, three years after the Aeneid's construction began, and ended in 180 CE, 207 years of peace. Incredible. Remember the wars that came before that. There were three wars. They were called the what wars? The Punic Wars, they were 264 to 146 BCE against which North African superpower? Well, really just a power at this time, yes? Carthaginians. The Carthaginians, yes. And during the Second Punic War, there was a guy named Hannibal. And what is it that he led over the Alps? Not horses, not just men. I mean, those two, yes? Elephants! Elephants. Yes, very good. And then what happened uh, right before, uh, 15 years before the Aeneas construction began or so? The big time war is a war between some Romans. We call that the what? Yes? The Roman Civil War. Which two great generals came to odds against each other? Yes? Julius Caesar and Pompeius. Julius Caesar and Pompeius Magnus. Pompey the Great. Very good. Okay. Y'all need to know that. Good, 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 good. All right. Remember also, what is it that Julius Caesar did to the Roman? How do I want to put this? The Romans had had which political system, which was then changed by Julius Caesar and then fully changed by Augustus Caesar, his son-in-law. They had one sort of political system, and then they had another. What did they have? What did they then get? Yes. They had a republic, and then it was changed to an empire. <clears throat> Remember that we have a republic. A republic is a representative democracy where you vote in order to have a representative who then lays down laws, becomes a so-called law maker. Yes, very good, but they, Julius Caesar installed himself as emperor for life, as imperator, it was a military title, it was usually only held for one year, he crossed the Rubicon with troops, did that, the people loved him, the people loved him, and in fact, in his will, he gave money to the people, which made them love him even more. There was then a battle for power between the triumvir. Uh, yesterday I forgot his name because he's so forgettable, but the third part of that, triumvirate was Crassus. There was Crassus, there was Mark Antony, and there was Octavian Caesar. Mark Antony then fled down to Egypt, 
used the Egyptian army under the rule of Cleopatra, one of the Ptolemaic dynasty, to fight against Mark Antony in a very famous battle. The battle was called the Battle of Actium. happened in 30 BCE, same year that the Aeneid began being written. Cleopatra, for unknown reasons, fled the battle, Mark Antony following her. The troops then fell apart, Mark Antony lost this battle. He then committed suicide, so did Cleopatra, supposedly, prosaically, by what means? What means? Yes? Didn't she hold a snake up to her? Yeah, she held an asp up to her, a poisonous snake, and supposedly bit her. We don't know whether that's true or not, but uh, that is what we say, and I believe that is how she dies at the end of Shakespeare's Cleopatra. Uh, a lot of famous plays are around this time. Cleopatra by Shakespeare, as well as Julius Caesar. Good, 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 good. All right. All right, we've talked about all of that. That's good information. I don't want to just summarize all of this. Notice this image here. You're going to see it again soon. My goodness. There's a lot of beautiful art around the Aeneid, and we will get to a lot of this. All right, book one. Arma Wurumque Kanu. I sing of arms and of a man. That's about half of the first line or so. This poem is going to be a poem about mankind, human nature, and about war. As if war and mankind are one thing united. And from the first two epics we read, we would say that conflict does seem to be innate to humans. We know that in the Iliad, Rage was first sung of. Sing Muse. Rage of Peleus' son Achilles. We know also that the nature of man is something we've considered. Tell me, Muse, the man of many ways from the Odyssey. Well, here you actually notice that if we look at the proem, and I'm sorry that I don't have a slide dedicated to that in the first line it says, I think of arms and of a man, in our translation, his fate. I sing, just like the Iliad, sing muse, except for we have an individual himself saying he sings. Kano, I sing, first person. If we look all the way down to line 13, you see, tell me the reason, muse. And so there is a connection here between the Iliad and the Odyssey. The first part, I sing. The second part, tell me. It's as if inspiration comes first. And reason comes second. Almost just like in the Iliad and the Odyssey. In the Iliad, we followed a hero of strength. Achilles, Achilles now. Passionate character. Emotional. But in the Odyssey, we followed somebody far more cerebral, intellectual, thinking. Who was his name? What was his name? Yes? What is his name now? Ulysses. Yes, very good. It's like reason follows passion. It's almost like Virgil here is directly connecting himself to the epic tradition which came before, and in fact he is. We have evidence for this. The first six books which we will be focusing on are the so-called Odysseic books. They are modeled after the Odyssey. They are a journey. Whereas the last six books are called the Iliadic half. They will focus on a, can you guess? What did the Iliad focus on? A war. That's right. As if the two parts of human nature, like Achilles' shield, are exploration and information gathering, 
finding one's so-called home, finding the thing one is searching for, and war, fighting for the thing one has searched for. In fact, I will read the poem to you just to set out the theme of the text. I sing of arms and of a man his fate had made him fugitive. Sounds a lot like who? Whose fate made him fugitive from his own home, who we recently read about, yes? I can think of two people. Who had trouble making it home? Yes. Ulysses, Odysseus. But who also lost his home because of fate most recently? In one of our plays, not one of our epics. Yes? Oedipus, too. Very good, very good. He was the first to journey from the coasts of Troy as far as Italy and the Lavinian shores. Across the lands and waters he was battered beneath the violence of high ones for the savage Juno's unforgetting anger. And many sufferings were his in war until he brought a city into being and carried in his gods to Latium. From this have come the Latin race, the lords of Alba, and the ramparts of high Rome. Tell me the reason, muse. What was the wound to her divinity so hurting her that she, the queen of the gods, compelled a man, remarkable for goodness, to endure so many crises, meet so many trials? Can such resentment hold the mind? of gods. And that's how it begins. So let's take it from there. So, where are we starting here? We're starting seven years after the end of the Trojan War. We are following the Trojans, the ancestors to the Romans, the people who will one day defeat the Greeks, the, who are the descendants of the Achaeans who defeated the Trojans. And so all things will come full what? Circle. Circle. Very good. So Juno, Hera is angry at the Trojans, but why? Well, let's notice this here. There are three reasons, and you'll see these very soon, probably tomorrow. Her favorite city is Carthage. And what we know from history is that the Trojans, who will become the Romans, will someday after three wars, what are those three wars called? The what wars again? The Punic Wars will destroy the Carthaginians. The Romans will someday sack it. And so, like sort of a Terminator uh, perspective, Hera, Juno, can see the future, and she does not want it to happen, so she wants to stop the future by stopping the past. Well, two, she's still angry about the judgment of Paris. Recall that it was a Trojan youth, Paris of Troy, who chose against her beauty, who chose Aphrodite, Venus, above her, uh, also above Minerva, Athena. And then there was a third reason, and I think I told you about this during the Iliad, but <clears throat> Hera had a daughter named Heba, which means youth. And her daughter was the cupbearer of the gods. But Jove, Jupiter, Zeus, found a Trojan youth, Ganymede, a prince, so comely, so beautiful, that he sent his eagle down to capture that young man, to become cupbearer to the gods. Juno, Hera, has never forgotten these three slights to her honor. And so... She will be the antagonist against the Trojans until deep into book 12 of this poem, the final book of this poem. Notice that it has half as many books as do the Iliad and the Odyssey. 
Though you should also notice that the books are quite a bit longer. He usually around a thousand lines, a couple are beneath that. <clears throat> All right. We have a comparison between her rage and to that of the Minerva against Ajax, son of Oileus. She makes a point early on. She says, Who are these Trojans? Who, what, am I truly a dread goddess? If they disrespect me so, if they make it to where they want. Minerva took out her rage on Ajax when he despoiled her temple by taking Cassandra in there, abducting her against her will. Who am I if these Trojans are allowed to trespass upon my will and I offer them no consequence? She works herself up. You see how she does this? Well, Juno, is she going to sit around, sit around all day and let these Trojans get away with what they've done to her as she sees it? Absolutely not. She gets to work. And so she approaches Iolia. We recall Iolia, the floating island of winds that Iolus is king of. King of the god. He is the god of winds. And in fact, he has the four cardinal winds trapped there. And he serves himself. He is underthane to Poseidon, Neptune. Now, no. something I am going to suggest to you is that these winds trapped under the force of reason within Neptune's cavern are the passions, are the emotions. They are that which must be held in check by reason. And the idea behind this is a philosophical idea, a philosophical idea that comes from Rome. It is called Stoicism. That your emotions care very little for what is good for you and what is bad for you. Think about Meliagros, think about Achilles. Were they the sorts of men who let their emotions control their decisions? Answer, yes. Did that lead them to bad outcomes? Yes. Do emotions care about the outcomes to situations? No. Your reason does, however, and so your reason must keep your emotions in check. That is a major, major theme of Stoicism. That is a major, major theme of this book itself. That is a major theme of animal-like, or animal-humans, we are, of course, animals, homo sapiens, maintaining political communities together. If we are going to live together in peace, we must check our what's? Emotions. That's right. So, Juno takes a trip down to Iolus's floating island. And she says, Iolus, I need you, though you do not serve me, you serve Neptune, to release your winds to cause a storm to mess up these Trojans on the way to where they're going. Now, Iolus says, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I serve Neptune, and he will be none too pleased with me if I do this. But remember Hera from the Iliad. She's very clever. She's the goddess of what? Marriage. And so remember what it is she offered to sleep in order to give him, uh, in order to get him to work with her to put Zeus then to sleep. What was it that she offered to sleep that got him to agree to go along with her plan, even though he had once almost been utterly destroyed by Zeus? She offered him a wife. Hmm. Well, that's what she does here again. Juno says, hmm, I know there's a nymph that you find quite comely. Her name is Deopia. And if you release these winds, I will give you this lady. And so Iola says, okay, okay. 
until he releases Eurus. The southeast wind, notice, the south wind in Africa, the southwest wind to blow uh, Aeneas, who is trying to go to the Italian peninsula, off course towards Africa, towards Carthage. A totally different continent from where he's trying to go to. He's going to be way off course. Who was it that Hera was so often uh, um, hmm, hmm, messing with? Uh, I, I wanted to use a better word than messing with. So often um, foiling the plans of and even sending storms to in the Iliad. It was not somebody in the Iliad, but somebody we heard stories about in the Iliad. Who was it that she was so often accosting? That's the word I was looking for. Yes. Heracles. But now he will be known in the Roman tongue as what? As you know him. Hercules. Hercules. Yes, very good. In any case, here we have Juno speaking to Iolus. Yes. Ah, yes. And releasing the winds. Releasing the winds. You like all these images so far? They're very nice. They're very nice. All right. Meet Aeneas. He sees a storm approaching. And he, like Achilleus, when the river Xanthos was attempting to drown him, wishes that at least he had died nobly at Troy to Diomedes. We will see Diomedes again in this text. Diomedes will be summoned by the Latin people to fight against the Trojans to defeat them again. Spoiler alert, he will not come. He will say he's done fighting Trojans. He's done with war. <clears throat> the storm hits. Three of Aeneas' ten ships are smashed against rocks that are called the altars. Apparently they're called the altars because at altars you make sacrifice. Apparently these are very dangerous rocks that have often been places for shipwrecks. Three of Aeneas' ships instantly dashed against these altars. The next seven are pushed all the way off towards Africa, towards Carthage, nowhere close to Italy where they are going to. They are disoriented and they are pushed off course. Very similar to Heracles being pushed off course by uh, by Hera, also very similar to Menelaus being pushed off course by Athena after the Iliad, which he tells us about in Book 4 of the Odyssey. Neptune then finds 186 to 220 in Book 1, hears the storm, and it causes him some rage, because did he order a storm? No. So something is out of order, something is out of line. These winds are not doing as they are commanded, that means that they're king has released them against the will of Neptune. It means that these emotions, these passions, have burst out against his desire. Neptune strongly rebukes the winds. And in fact, I want to read that to you, because I want you to understand the first Homeric simile, the, the first Virgilian simile. Quite some bit here. So, ah, uh, yes. So Neptune speaks. This is line 200. And I want you to notice what this simile focuses on. Quicker than his tongue brings quiet to the swollen waters, sets the gathered clouds to fight, calls back the sun. Together then, Samothoe and Triton, thrusting, dislodge the ships from jagged crags. But now the god himself takes up his trident to lift the galleys, and he clears a channel across the vast sandbank. He stills the sea and glides along the water on light wheels and just as, focus here, this is where the simile begins, and just as often when a crowd of people is rocked by a rebellion and the rabble rage in their minds and firebrands and stones fly fast. This is a mob. For fury finds its weapons. If by chance they see a man remarkable for righteousness and service, they are silent. 
and stand attentively. He controls their passion by his words and cools their spirits. So all the clamor of the sea subsided. After the father, fatherhood will be a theme, those people who bring order to a community of people, a family or, or a political community like the Trojans, gazing on the waters and riding under the cloudless skies, had guided his sources, letting his willing chariot run. The first major simile of the entire text is a simile comparing Neptune bringing calm to the winds and to the waves, comparing him to a political speaker, an orator, speaking in front of a crowd of people who are pumped up, amped up, ready to fight, and bringing them to peace. Almost as if this is a simile for one's mind, overruling one's passions, and bringing one's self to peace so that one can make a rational, cool, intelligent decision that does not result in utter tragedy. It's almost as if that is the way of looking at things that the Romans had attained to, that the Greeks were attempting to attain to. It's a very American way, I would say, of looking at things as well, because we are ourselves fairly stoic and believe that who cares more about you, your mind or your passions? Your mind, because your passions will lead you precisely when you need them. You're angry, you just get into a fight with somebody, who has to deal with the consequences? You do. Your anger flits away, Mars leaves you, but then your mind has to figure out a solution. And so that's something well worth thinking about. So, the men make landfall at a cave, a cove of the nymphs on the Libyan coast, that's northern Africa where Carthage is, very close to where Menelaus would have been in Egypt when he was set up. Seven ships remain, and so Aeneas shows his prowess as a hunter, a provider, a father of his people, a father of a people to come. He slays seven stags, themselves a symbol of kingly authority, because what is it that stags have on their heads so similar to a crown? Antlers, and if you ever read Harry Potter, the kingly, princely Harry Potter... What is his patronus? Which is actually a word derived from pater, father in Latin. It is itself a stag. Yes. Very good. Very good. Very good. And also, something to know about stag as a symbol of a ruler is not only does it rule with a crown, but what can it use its horns to do? Its antlers to do? To fight. Yes, it literally uses them to fight against other stags. Sort of like we use our minds to fight against other what? Humans. Quite right. Quite right! He addresses the men with winged words, even though his heart is heavy with cares. He is somebody who says what needs to be said, even when he feels a way differently from how he speaks. He is very much a politician in that way. He reminds us quite a bit of Odysseus Ulysses. And so we see that a theme that we will see in this text is a theme, we, a theme that we have seen all throughout the year, but especially in the Odyssey and in Oedipus, which is all is not as it what? Seems. Very good. And though we may feel emotion, and it may rage beneath the surface of our skin, we must always act calmly and with rationality if we wish life to be less tragic than it could otherwise be. Alright, Jupiter gazes down upon the Trojans on the Libyan coast. And Venus addresses him. Venus will mostly be the advocate for these Trojans, just as Minerva, Athena, was the advocate for Odysseus and his family on Ithaca. 
And she says, you swore, you swore that the Romans would come from Trojans. Have you changed your mind, dread ruler Jupiter? And in fact, Antinor, Priam's advisor, escaped to the Liburnians. Is, is all of this that's happening due to the rage of one, Juno? Very much like the rage that caused so much tragedy, so many souls of heroes to go down to the house of Hades and to be the food of dogs and birds in the Iliad because of Achilleus. Well, Jupiter kisses her on the lips and responds. He calls Venus Cytheria. And he says, this is my will. And it will not change. Because recall, once Jupiter sets something in motion, he completes it. He starts the job, he finishes it, because he is the steward of fate. He cannot himself even stop fate. But he is charged with making fate happen. So he says, Aeneas will someday come to the Italian peninsula, where he will find a city called Latium after its king Latinus. And he will there fight and overcome the Latins. Then three years will pass, and he will die under mysterious circumstances. And then his son, who goes by two names, know them both, Ascanius and Ulysses, will rule for 30 years. And then the kingdom will be moved to a place called Alba Longa. Something about the name Ulysses, it is the predecessor to the name Julius. Julius, like Julius Caesar. Very good. Very good, very good, very good. So Aeneas will come to the Latin people. He will overcome the Latin people. Three years will pass. He will disappear. His son Ascanius slash Ulysses will then rule for 30 years. And when I say disappear, that's a euphemism for the fact that he will what? Die. Very good. Very good. The capital will then be moved from a place called Lavinium. The city Latium will be renamed as Lavinium for the wife of Aeneas. It will be his third wife. He will have one wife. Her name is Creusa. She is his Asian wife from Troy. He will have another wife, an African wife, in a way, named Dido from Carthage. He will then have a European wife, a new wife, named Lavinia. And he will name the city, or rather, yes, he will name the city that he rules Lavinium after her. After he dies, three years will pass, and his son, Ascanius, will move the capital of his people from Lavinium to Alba Longa. 300 years will pass at Alba until a priestess of Mars, who is related to Aeneas, will have a son named Romulus after consummating her love with Mars, Ares, Romulus will found Rome. In fact, the name Rome, obviously, eponymously, comes from Romulus. And something known about Romulus and his twin brother, who he killed himself in a Cain and Abel-style fashion, is that they were suckled from a sea-wolf, or from a she-wolf. You will see a she-wolf again, actually, next year at the very beginning of the Inferno. Wolves are known to be very fierce, ferocious, which means that the Romans will be very what? Fierce and ferocious. Yes. Very good. Very good. And he says very famously, Jupiter, lines 389 to 390, I set no limits to their fortunes and no time. I give them empire without end. He says that the Roman people will never what? will never perish or be destroyed. Which, interestingly enough, what do we know? 
did. That they certainly did. That they certainly did. Though they did last for quite a long time. Quite a long time. Uh, a thousand years or more if you, like I said yesterday, include the Eastern Empire Byzantium. Uh, the, Byz the Byzantines, they called themselves Romans, but everybody else called them Greeks. Which I think is just a funny artifact of history. And so, something interesting too is that the Romans will themselves defeat these three lands. Tell me if you recall who ruled these lands from the Iliad. Mycenae, Argus, and Phthia. And then finally a Roman Trojan named Julius Caesar will be born. Who recalls who was the ruler of Mycenae? The richest of all the Achaeans. Yes. Agamemnon will fall to the Romans. Argus. Where the word Argives comes from. Diomedes defeated Thea. He was the main character of the Iliad. Achilleus, his people. All of them will fall to the Romans. They will be a truly great people. An unholy rage will sit at his back. Alright, so Mercury, Hermes, is then sent down to make welcome for Aeneas in Carthage to set things up. And we'll see Mercury several times during the course of this text, particularly in Book 4. We'll see him actually speak twice to Aeneas and uh, try to talk some sense into him. He breathes a, spe a spirit of kindness into Dido. She is the ruler of Carthage. She herself has a very tragic uh, back history that we will learn about soon. She, he is making her receptive. He is the god of travelers and guests, just in the same way that Zeus or Jove is the god of hospitality. And so he sets the way for Aeneas. Um, but what starts as a good beginning will not have uh, uh, a very good ending, unfortunately speaking. So Venus then approaches Aeneas disguised as a young warrioress. She's in disguise, incognito, as she meets him very much like Athena would often be in disguise when she talked to Telemachus or Odysseus during the course of the Odyssey. She says she's looking for her sister. Aeneas says, you look a little bit like a god. And then she says, well, don't think about that so much right now. What you should think about is the fact that you are near Carthage and Tyr. And the leader of Carthage is a woman who was first a queen of Tyr, but then had to flee. Flee why? Well, she was married to a man named Sychaeus. And he was the wealthiest Sidonian landowner. And he became king by her side. Ah, but what has happened? What has happened? Why is there now Carthage? And why is Dido alone? Well, she had an evil brother named Pygmalion. And Pygmalion lusted after the power and the Sidonian gold of Sychaeus. In fact, Pygmalion killed Sychaeus in secret. And so, Dido one night... In a dream, we so often see dreams. We see Penelope's dreams revealing to her the fate of the suitors. We see Achilleus' dreams in the Iliad revealing the, way, the will of Patroclus. We saw Agamemnon's dream lying to him about the fate of, uh, or the, the outcome of the battle of the next day against the Trojans. Well, here, Dido saw a dream in which her husband showed herself to him, uh, to her, and he said, there is a hidden treasure underneath Carthage. You need to take that and flee because you are in danger because your brother Pygmalion killed me and the next person he may kill might be you. Right. And so she took this hidden treasure. She fled 
from Tyre, and she founded her own city alongside those who were supportive of her, or of the rightful ruler. She sailed to the place where Carthage would be in Libya and started setting it to work. In fact, when we come upon Carthage, it will itself be being built into the place that it becomes. We will see that judges are laying down laws, that sh shipbuilders are building ships, and that walls are being built there. It is in a process of genesis or generation. Linnaeus then whines about Troy, and Venus talks of bird signs and leaves, and he very sadly says, why do you play with me in this way, mother? Why is it that you do not reveal yourself to me? It's as if he is looking for love from a mother who he has never truly had, in the same way that Achilleus has a mother that he has not truly had. But to have a goddess as a mother is almost like having no mother at all. Alright, so, Venus, like Athena for Odysseus and Scoria, then wraps Aeneas and his friend Achates, or Achaetes, into a mist. Achates is what I'll go with. We see Carthage being built, as I said, the gates being laid down, the streets being paved, the laws being laid down, the judges being chosen, the harbors being excavated. It is setting its borders, making transportation and infrastructure possible, laying down laws so that people know how to treat each other and to treat their business negotiations. Judges being chosen in order to deal out punishments and to rule when people are innocent, in order to maintain decency and a common wheel. And then harbors being excavated so that they can be a power, a trading power. The city, the center of the city, has a temple to Juno, which is some dark foreshadowing, because which goddess, of course, hates these Trojans? Juno. So what will exist in the heart of the Carthaginians for these Trojans and then Romans? Hate. That's quite right. Quite right. All right. We then receive a piece of what is called in literary terms ekphrasis. Ekphrasis is a description of art with words, which is very difficult. Most of the time when you see some art and you try and describe it to somebody, you're like, it's ugly or it's pretty. Well, this is an attempt to fully describe a piece of art. And in fact, what was the most famous piece of ekphrasis that you saw in the Iliad? A description of a very famous piece of art is extended across a page. In fact, it was extended across three pages. Yes? The description of Achilles' shield. So we get another major description of the frescoes on the walls of Juno's temple. Apparently there are beautiful paintings all across it. And so, well, we see some terrible, terrible things. We see Agamemnon and Hector and Achilles. We don't mind seeing Hector. We do mind seeing Achilles and Agamemnon. We especially mind seeing Achilles dragging Hector's body. We see Rhesus killed by Diomedes. So we know that these Trojans have now become quite famous. We see Troilus, whose name, like Troy, means that he is a prince. And in fact, there are two famous plays about Troilus and Cressida by both, um, oh, I'm forgetting hit Chaucer, very good, Chaucer in his Canter, not in his Canterbury Tales, but separate from those, and also Shakespeare has a Troilus and Cressida play. We see Achilles dragging Hector three times around Troy. We know that in the Iliad, he actually did not drag Hector around the walls of Troy. He dragged him back to, or dragged him back to his camp, and then circled him around the funeral pyre of whom? Patroclus. 
Very good. But this changes that a little, and we see Priam pleading. These all seem to be images of the Greeks or the Achaeans being unjust towards the Trojans. It is a story of their tragedies, because this story is a story of their tragedy. We see also Memnon and Penthesilea, who we saw from the time between the Iliad and the Odyssey, fighting the Achaeans, dying against the Achaeans. We then see a Trojan from our mist. We are on a hill, looking through the mist, and this Trojan's name is Ilionius for Ilion. Speak to Dido. We meet the queen. She agrees to send them to Hesperia, which is a word for Italy, because it is the land to the west. The western land. Or to Sicily, where King Acestes, who was close and related by blood to them, lives. In fact, we will see Sicily. We will see some ships burn there and some Olympic-style games, some funeral-style games. Or someone we do not yet know will be dead at that time. Or these people may, if they wish, stay in Carthage. They need men. They need manpower. They have plenty of enemies, at the very least here. And so, after hearing this, Aeneas, knowing that this queen, like a goddess, knows justice, steps from his cloud and remains standing and is introduced like a dream, coming out from nowhere. He sends for his son Ascanius as he is greeted and tested by Dido. Here's an image of him looking quite regal. And then, ah, we'll have to get to this tomorrow, but... Uh, then Venus will send her son Cupid, Eros, to make sure that Dido really feels the right way for old Aeneas. And then he will tell her a story. A story of the fall of Rome.